the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what is going on this week? Well, you know, we just recently had General Jack Keane on to talk about uh, the Trump administration's drawdowns in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in Somalia. And the argument out there is, is that we need to lessen our involvement in the Middle East so we can focus on the real problem, which is the rise of a resurgent totalitarian communist China. And we've got a colleague at AEI, Dan Blumenthal, who has just written an outstanding book that tackles just this issue. And so we're bringing him on the show to talk about it. Dan has been working on this for a long time. This has really been, you know, sort of the apotheosis of his study of China, of his work with the government, of his many, you know, many regional trips. It's a blockbuster, not least because the challenge that we face from the People's Republic has really only recently been recognized. And I would actually make the case to you, Mark, that if it hadn't been for COVID, we would probably still be fighting to persuade people that China represents a serious danger to us geostrategically. No, I think COVID has actually woken up the world uh, to the threat that China poses. Because look, all of us in the world of AEI who've been focused on the battle for freedom around the world have been talking about China's treatment of the Uyghurs and the rising totalitarian repression in the country and the fact that they're using technology in ways that are unprecedented to enforce a police state at home. And a lot of people say, yeah, but you know, I've got cheap iPhones and cheap sneakers and you know, how does that affect me? Well, now we know how it affects us. The uh, China that lies about the Uyghurs and lies about political repression also lies about a virus. And that virus came here and it's ravaged our country. And we're now, you know, we're now in December and we're about to go into the worst of the virus yet. And, you know, all of a sudden people are locking down again and and restaurants are shutting down and millions of people are going to lose their jobs. Absolutely. It's woken us up to the danger that China poses. And if we've ever needed grand strategy before, this is where we need it. Well, what I think is so hard for people to appreciate is just what a contrarian Dan was about this in the beginning. You know, I still remember heads of major corporations preaching the wisdom of the China model to us. You know, this democracy stuff, that's all overstated. Managed capitalism is the wave of the future. We're all going to be like China. Boy, Talk about wrong, criminally wrong, you know, millions of deaths later, people's freedom taken away, concentration camps, not to speak of a phalanx of well-armed military bases throughout the South China Sea, a place through which $1 trillion in trade goes every single year. And China basically now controls it. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I just showing our age here. We were in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 1990s when our boss, Jesse Helms, was leading the charge against China's entry into the WTO and permanent most favored nation status for China. And who was on the other side of that? 
Joe Biden, <laughs> president-elect <laughs> of the United States. Joe Biden was the one who was making all those arguments you just made. China is no threat to us and the rise of China is good for America. And it hasn't turned out that way. And now we're putting the guy who got it wrong in charge of the country for at least four years, it seems. Well, you know, to be fair to Joe Biden, I think there were a lot of people who got this wrong. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm Okay, that's so one of... thing. <laughs> what about all the rest? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to give you all the rest. But I will say a lot of people got China wrong. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I, we used to have this argument internally at AEI as recently as five years ago. You know, when we talk about, for example... Chinese infiltration of governments. New Zealand arrested a mole that rose up through the government that was working for the Chinese government. The Australians have recently arrested people. We now have these Confucius programs in American universities, and they have been set up with the enthusiastic cooperation of administrations in universities around the country because people look at the Chinese money and they look at the Chinese know-how and they say, we want some of that. Einstein had a Chinese mole on her staff while she was chairman of the intelligence committee. Exactly. And so, you know, I think there's been a turn, but I'll say this, I still don't think that there's consensus about what it is we need to do. You know, it's, it's what you said, I want my cheap iPhone and I don't really care about this other stuff and maybe I'm not gonna be too serious about it. I think there's gonna be huge pressure on Joe Biden to actually show how it is that he's gonna keep Chinese feet to the fire in the way that the Trump administration did. Well, he won't, I mean, the. the, the... <laughs> Just, just that simple. That ain't going to happen. Why don't we do this? Let's go to Dan because Dan has so much fascinating information to bring forward to this conversation and then we can talk a little bit more after. Well, you and I know Dan well. He's the director of Asian Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's actually a lawyer by training, but you know we don't hold that against him. He's been at AEI for uh, quite a while, but prior to that, he was at the Department of Defense. He's also been a senior member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He's the go-to guy, not just for Republicans, but for Republicans and Democrats in Washington who want to understand exactly what's going on, what the threat is, and what we should do. So we're super lucky to have him on this week. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for parking, Danny. It's great to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, you've got a new book coming out called The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. What is the China Nightmare? The tagline is that a strong but frustrated power poses a special kind of danger. So China, we know, is very strong and powerful but it is also beset by internal weaknesses and vulnerabilities that makes uh, Xi Jinping lash out even more than he otherwise would have. So Dan, I feel part ownership of this book because I've watched you write it over the years and I've, I've watched your thinking really crystallize around a set of ideas. And I, and I want to say this right up front. You know, I think you are really in the absolute vanguard of China experts in this town who began to sound the alarm at the moment that everybody else was saying, oh my God, it's such great news. China's so great. They're going to overtake us. It's going to be awesome. So could you just kind of lay out a little bit the evolution of your thinking about China and its relation to the rest of the world? When I was at the Pentagon in uh, 2001 to 2004, as you said, people were pretty blasé about any threat from China. 
but uh, a few of us were watching very closely back then, the military modernization program of China and its uh, very clear desire to intimidate and coerce at the time Taiwan and very deep concerned about US military capabilities around the area wanting to neutralize those hastened by fear of what the US first accomplished in the early parts of the Iraq war. They really wanted to rival us in military power and people weren't taking it very seriously at presidential levels, at secretary of state levels. And obviously we had a war on terror to fight. So sounding the alarm back then that China was very serious about becoming a military and geopolitical uh, competitor to us was uh, falling on, on deaf ears. As you know, this was the time where we heard that China was going to be invited to into the world system as a responsible stakeholder and take its role and play a more responsible role. The basic premise being that if we kept offering China more incentives to act responsibly, they would act more responsibly. My thinking evolved in, in many ways. So first of all, I, I did see China as at first a, a kind of unstoppable, inevitable threat that was really ascending so fast that there wasn't too much we could do about it if we didn't act quickly. But then I started to see, talking to our own economists at AI, other economists, that China was facing uh, economic trouble, economic stagnation, even as it was becoming more prominent on the geopolitical stage and becoming more um, influential in Southeast Asia and key parts of the world, Africa and so on. But then, then we started to see changes inside the party that I write about in the book that uh, were actually going against the reform and opening policies of uh, the Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, and starting to reverse those. So I, we started to see this mix of, wow, the party's turning very repressive at a time where its economy is slowing down. Again, a counterintuitive thought in 2008, 2009, when the conventional wisdom was that China was doing everything right, in quotes, in terms of responding to the financial crisis, when a lot of us could see that that just wasn't true. They were panicked about the financial crisis. They were taking on a lot of debt. The party was changing to gain more control internally. But yet they were lashing out in South, the South China Sea. They were lashing out against uh, President Obama and, and Secretary Clinton at the time. So there was a strange mix forming around then that was uh, a power that was in some trouble, but yet really feeling its way and, and really asserting itself on the international stage. That combination was becoming more clear to me around 2010, 2011. China obviously started out as a totalitarian communist dictatorship. And you know, through the market-oriented reforms of Deng Xiaoping, it started to move towards of a more authoritarian system, right, with a crony capitalist uh, economic system, but still a uh, authoritarian political structure. Is China slipping back or, or actually moving intently back towards totalitarianism? The short answer is yes. I mean, the, the short answer is they can do things under Xi Jinping now that Mao would only dream of. So this Orwellian dystopian technology that they're employing to control the population is totalitarian in nature. So the ability to round up Uyghur Muslims and know everything about them through biometric data and DNA testing, and then this social credit system where Chinese individuals get a credit score based on how much they adhere to party doctrine, you know, this kind of data collection and data technology uh, empowers a totalitarian way of governing. That said, 
some of Deng Xiaoping's market-oriented reforms are too hard to reverse. Some of them are too hard to reverse. They're very much part of the international system. They're very much dependent on the U.S. and European markets. They still don't want to completely overturn that uh, dependency or, or that interaction. But in terms of social control, in terms of political control, we're seeing the emergence of something new, a, a kind of techno-authoritarian state that still is allowing for some free market activity. But we're definitely seeing a slide back uh, in terms of where it seemed like China was headed. There was a time where economic reforms necessitated certain very gradual legal and political reforms, but that's all been reversed. Dan, one of the fascinating things to me is, is this transition that you describe, right? Where this notion of a responsible stakeholder, which seems almost laughable now, has transformed into this retrograde Orwellian social control society with negative implications for everybody. But one of the, the fascinating things that you talk about is this counterintuitive. You know, once everybody cottoned on to the notion that China's strategic ambitions were growing even faster than its economic ambitions, that was all good and fine. But what the dimension that I think really you added is that China isn't in fact doing as well economically and that that economic decline is a source of perhaps even more risk to us than people understand. Can you just go into that? Absolutely. What happened when Deng Xiaoping and the reformers left the scene, Deng Xiaoping, one of his appointed reformers was Jiang Zemin and, and Zhu Rongji, uh, and they really did enact economic reforms. There's no question about that. You know, we can't just sit here and say everybody in the West made a mistake in the 1990s and the early part of the 21st century, they really were reforming and growing very fast. And you saw an embrace of markets. But then when Deng and the, his self-appointed successors left the scene, there was a massive onslaught by, let's call them conservatives in China, which is conservatives in China is, you know, as everything is so contradictory in China, are Maoists, essentially. The conservatives in China said, this has just gone too far. Economic reform and the legal structure you need for economic reform and some of the political structure you need for market-based capitalism, which was reforming as well. This has gone too far. This is allowing too many Western ideas into China. This is going to lead to the same situation that the Soviets faced with Gorbachev. And they talked about that in China and Chinese all the time. Gorbachev phobia. And Xi Jinping at the time, who was running certain provinces, was studying the mistakes that Gorbachev made, and everything became about how to avoid being a Gorbachev. So basically, what happened was Hu Jintao, the predecessor of Xi Jinping, could not stand up to this onslaught of conservative criticism. So once they began to let the state sector back in and squeeze out entrepreneurs, and now we're talking about the early parts, the first decade of the 21st century, once they started to do that, the political reforms, the legal reforms went away too. They were really turning into much more of a national security state. And at the time, that, I would say, made China more dangerous because they also wanted to lock in more gains internationally. They had to sort of drum up nationalistics fervor, talk about becoming a great nation, rejuvenating the great Chinese nation. So what is the nightmare then? Is the nightmare that China succeeds or that China fails? 
because both could lead to very bad outcomes. Yeah, I would say that the nightmare is China succeeds in this fashion, this China succeeds. So not the China of Deng Xiaoping succeeding, not the China that is embracing market reform and slowly moving toward certain political and legal reforms, but in many ways needed a much more moderate foreign policy in order to keep markets open and to keep from building coalitions against it, from counter coalitions against it. The nightmare is this kind of more prickly China, more concerned about internal subversion, lashing out because of its failings, say recently on COVID, it bullies other countries. And it'll only succeed if the US, really the US, doesn't keep the pressure on. So the nightmare is this particular kind of China, let's call it Xi Jinping's techno-authoritarian China with slowing economic growth succeeds. So let's just talk a little bit about what this new China has been up to, not on the internal collapse side, but on the external aggression side. You obviously have done a great deal of work on Taiwan, but there's also the South China Sea, there's Hong Kong, there's the fight going on right now with, for example, Australia. Just talk a little bit about, first of all, you know, the facts that I think people are less familiar with, but also about the threat that they pose. Absolutely. So it, it's a much more multifaceted threat than we knew about or expected. When I talk back to uh, my own time working at the Department of Defense and working on a congressional commission, we're very, very focused on a military threat. And it's there. I mean, you know, without question, there's a military threat. The U.S. military will admit, uh, not on the record, but they're afraid they can lose a war to China over Taiwan. So it's very much there. It's very lethal. But these other threats, these softer threats, let's call them, I think we've just discovered over the last few years. So you mentioned Australia. Australia was one of the first countries to uncover a very sophisticated overlapping network of political influence inside of Australia. The author and journalist Clive Hamilton in Australia, who really, and, and another one, John Garneau, who really made a difference by saying, oh my goodness, the CCP has agents of influence throughout our country and the education system. They paid off Australian politicians. They're trying to co-opt elites in Australia to at least align Australian policy with China's. And this sort of shook the world. New Zealand was, was another country that was on the forefront of battling uh, these sort of influence campaigns. We, we thought, obviously, we're sitting here in 2020, we thought that these kind of active measures, these ex-Leninist groups were a thing of the past, right? But they're not, not at all. China has a, a very deep network of agents in the Western world subverting de- democratic processes. Uh, and we're just starting to uncover them. We're just starting to see what we might do about them. But this is sort of a, a harder threat to deal with. This is once you let China in, in terms of commercial relations, ed- ed- educational, cultural relations, you are definitely bringing in agents of influence and it's subverting democracies. Let's talk about Taiwan for a second, because uh, you said something shocking there, which is that the U.S. military thinks it could lose a war with China over Taiwan. Talk about that, but also talk about the impact of this sort of domestic economic slowdown that's happening in China right right now, uh, where they're not going from strength to strength economically anymore. And when Chinese leaders do that, they tend to retreat to strident nationalism to distract from their economic woes. So 
not only is it are we in danger of potentially losing a war with China over Taiwan, but is such a war more likely because of the economic crisis in Beijing? Let me start with the comment about fears of losing a war over Taiwan. I think that there are certain analysts who have written about this publicly after war games and working with the Department of Defense, as we're currently postured right now, because defense budgets and modernization programs have been so starved for so long. I'm not one of those people who who says we got to pull out everywhere so we can just focus on China. That makes no sense even for a a competition with China. But we really have starved our budgets, and uh, the Indo-Pacific Command is doing what it can with these starved budgets. But you know, China is hyper-focused on neutralizing uh, and undermining U.S. attempts to effectively fight in and around Taiwan. The strategic shock to the United States has been that it hasn't just been missiles that they've built up, although that's been extremely significant, or aircraft. It's been jumping ahead in things like space and cyber and information campaigns, such that the first strikes could be to to blind the U.S. military, to make it deaf and blind and not not able to operate. So the the U.S. is is very concerned that its advantages over the Chinese military have already been eroded. In terms of your second question, without a doubt, economic weaknesses and pressure on Xi Jinping from inside because there are many Chinese elites who think that he is arrogant and has overreached, has made him lash out against Taiwan. Just take this last year during COVID, which contrary to Chinese propaganda, unfortunately accepted in a lot of quarters back in the West, they have not done well. You know, we don't know the the rates of, of infection. We don't know how bad a public health crisis it actually is in China. It has been an economic crisis because it makes sense. I mean, there are markets in in Europe and, and the U.S. have dried up. But you know, she has not just sat there and said, let's, let's take care of our internal problems right now. He's been lashing out this year. I mean, so some of these activities to intimidate Taiwan have been the most intense we've ever seen this year as China's on its back heels because of COVID. And as it's harshly criticized by Australia, by Europe for its disinformation campaigns and by COVID. So here we have a living example before us of a Xi Jinping who's under pressure internally who is putting his foot on the gas pedal when it comes to nationalistic endeavors. We saw it with Hong Kong, and Taiwan is next. Where does this all lead? China doesn't want to precipitate a conflict with the United States. They'd be happy to have something where we caved, you know. But I remember back about probably six or seven, maybe even longer years ago, you had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal that said that China wasn't interested in the Middle East other than for continuity of energy, because they really just didn't, they didn't want to take on the problems. You know, they were happy to let us deal with those, you know, those pains in the, the ass over in the region, and, and they would do other stuff. And so, you know, with that sort of in mind, as China calibrates, what next? How do they test us and find us wanting? How do they not precipitate a conflict, either over Taiwan or in the South China Sea? Well, so... Their preferred strategy on Taiwan would be, as you say, not to precipitate a full-on war or conflict. It would be to gain Taiwan through lower uses of force, to embarrass and bring down the government of President Tsai Ing-wen, whom they just hate. Uh, it, it's trite, but it's it's not trite in China. She's the example of successful democratic president of a Chinese society, right? And they just can't abide that. So 
so they would prefer to do something like grab an offshore island and prove Taiwan impotent and prove the, that the U.S. won't come to its rescue because the U.S. wouldn't have many options. Some lower use of force combined with some sort of intensive cyber and information campaign and the use of uh, agents of influence in Taiwan to bring about a government more friendly to China and cut some sort of Hong Kong-like deal, which the Taiwanese people don't want, obviously, but but that's the preferred strategy. And that's why they have this sort of multifaceted uh, strategy that uses political networks as well as their military campaigns. Your question about where does this lead? What do they want? Well, in some ways, they really know what they want. And in my book, I go through the documents Xi Jinping has put forth in Chinese in 2017 at one of the party congresses, which are these congresses that are where you make these official statements and everybody, all the cadre have to sign off on them. And he stated very clearly, we need to march back to center stage, meaning become the middle kingdom again, central to geopolitics. We need to reshape the rules of the international order to make them more friendly. He doesn't say it like this, but make them more friendly to the Chinese Communist Party, meaning towards authoritarianism. We need the Belt and Road Initiative, which is often thought too much of an economic initiative. It's actually mostly a geopolitical initiative. The idea is to create all kinds of new networks of strategic partnerships around the world through this, the forum of, of the Belt and Road Initiative, replace the U.S. alliance system over time with that strategic network of partnerships. In the propaganda, they talk about how that strategic network of partnerships will be more friendly and mutual and harmonious in the U.S. alliance system. Uh, it talks about the need to become a military and technological superpower. They're not sort of hiding the fact that they want to be number one and they want to bend the international order to their liking. Uh, when it comes to specific regions, it's very important what you said. So, okay, so we, we know clearly in the Indo-Pacific and Asia, they want Taiwan back into the fold, Hong Kong. They want to neutralize Japan and, and make the Japanese public sour on staying power of the U.S. Uh, alliance system. The, the, I'd say the number one targets are the U.S. allies in Asia, Australia. Japan, Taiwan's a quasi-partner, South Korea, Philippines, Thailand. But then when it comes to regions further afield, absolutely. So the Middle East is a big gas station for China. That's the primary desire. They don't want to get involved in the complicated diplomacy between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They just want them both to sell oil to them. But what's changed a bit since seven years ago is they do want bases. They have a base in Djibouti and they want other bases. So if we have to be very careful in our Middle East policy, because if we do start to look like we're not as strongly tied into our Gulf partners, the Chinese will come in and, and start to ask for bases and logistical hub, hubs all around the Gulf to protect their oil. How does climate change policy factor into all of this? Because we had Dan Jurgen on the podcast recently, and he talked about how basically the fracking revolution has made America an energy superpower um, for the first time. And that has a lot of foreign policy impacts. How does that fact and the possibility that we might constrain our production of oil and natural gas and other things in pursuit of climate policy and try to push China to do the same, how does that affect China's rise? You're not going to be surprised at my answer. I mean, the fracking revolution and the U.S. position on oil and gas has been enormously beneficial for the U.S. competition with China. But we have to remember, and I try to get this through in my book, we have to remember that China is very aware of its own vulnerabilities, right? So the idea was they were going to diversify their energy and gas supply 
away from the Middle East or protect it by buying oil all around the world or by buying oil and gas from Russia. But now they're buying a lot from the United States or a major exporter. In their minds, they do that because they have to for economic reasons, but they're not comfortable with it. And one of the things that they assess as a key vulnerability, something we really have to pay more attention to, what they say are their vulnerabilities, they're not just oil and gas, now being more dependent on the United States for that, but also other things they buy from us, you know, food. I know I'm going a little astray here from climate change, but they assess their food supply chain to be very weak and dependent on the United States. So anything we do that would affect our ability to export commodities to China, I think hurts us. A focus on climate change could have a real other danger as well. And that's not to say that climate change pursuit of reduction in carbon emissions, of course, is not a worthy goal, but we can't confuse issues. It's not a geopolitical goal. Let's say we said right now under Biden administration, we want you, Xi Jinping, to pledge to be carbon neutral on an accelerated time frame, you know, something like that. Xi Jinping will not leave it at, he thinks he's doing us a big favor, right? And he will have all sorts of other asks of us that have nothing to do with climate change. Maybe loosen the tariffs, loosen the technology restrictions, loosen our relationship with Taiwan, whatever it is. As soon as the Chinese hear that we want them to solve a a global action problem, they start to find leverage and think about how they're going to use that leverage. And I think that would just be a huge mistake. If I could follow up, because one of the things Jurgen pointed out is that he said that China would be the big winner of a transition to renewable energy because China has re- in the last decade replaced us as the world's largest oil importer. And that China knows that in a confrontation over Taiwan, one of the strategies we could use is have the Navy shut down the Straits of Malacca to tanker oil tankers bringing oil to China, which could cripple their economy. So doesn't a transition to renewable energy help China insulate itself from both military and economic pressure that we could put on them to be more responsible in the world. Absolutely. It absolutely does. I mean, the day that they're less reliant on long supply lines and sea lanes for oil and gas or any other commodities is a day we lose a lot of leverage. And that leverage exists every day. When the U.S. enters into into diplomatic talks of any kind, they remember that the U.S. is a global military power with great relationships with oil suppliers and so on. So that's absolutely right. The second thing I would say is China is benefiting in terms of lower carbon emissions from fracking, from our natural gas, the move away from, from coal. I mean, they still use a lot of coal. Jurgen is the world's best expert on this, but I'm sure he broke it down for you in, t- in terms of China's energy usage. They're still far away from a transition, but they've reduced carbon emissions uh, because they are exporting, uh, importing, um, you know, cleaner LNG. So Dan, here's my exit question. The picture you've painted is a rising China is very dangerous to us and our allies and our values. A declining China <laughs> is very dangerous to us and our allies and our values. <laughs> I, you've sold me. I still remember the day when you and I and Derek Scissors, who's our senior uh, China political economist at AEI, desperately tried to find somebody to speak on a panel and say that China decline was dangerous. And we couldn't find a living soul. But here's the question. Does this inevitably end in conflict? It does not inevitably end in conflict. Again, I, I don't mean for a cop-out, but if China really believes 
that not only will its political goals not be met through conflict, but you know, far worse than that, that, that they couldn't control the political outcome of a conflict with the United States internally. So what I mean by that is this. So I say in my book that China studies its own past very clearly and in many ways responds to what they view as internal and external threats based on their own history. So they believe their last dynasty fell because of the combination of a foreign humiliation and internal revolution, internal civil war, and so on. And to this day, I should say, the number one crime in China, what most of these dissidents and human rights activists get arrested for, is colluding with foreign forces to bring down the Chinese Communist Party. It's that combination of internal and foreign. And so we have to make them believe that we know their vulnerabilities, and if they decide to go down the path of conflict, you know, we'll make their fears come true. It sounds extremely hard line, but it works. And right now, frankly, the last four years, you know, there's all kinds of problems we can discuss with the tone of Trump's policies, but on China, they fear him. They think he's unpredictable. They're standing up to them. They, think they the figured tariffs, that out, huh? Right. And, and the tariffs are, you know, our, our economists don't like the tariffs, but the tariffs are, they can't believe that someone has enacted across the board tariffs. They think it's just a political attack on their economic system. Uh, they're not paying attention to our internal debates about tariffs. So, so pressure works on China, sometimes very blunt pressure. But to your point about, you know, China can't win in a sense from what I'm saying, whether they decline or rise. A certain kind of China that's rising, I think, is fine. You know, even a more moderate CCP member than Xi Jinping, I think we could live with. In the book, I discuss the demographic situation, right, which our great demographer Nick Eberstadt has pointed me to. But this is something, a country this big getting old, by 2030 looking like Europe and its demography, right, you know, it's an unbelievable social problem, public health problem, disease problem. At China that's trying to fix its manifold social problems, its manifold environmental problems, its manifold ethnic problems in a, in a more just way, is a China that if it's slowly still rising, I think we're fine with. I think it's, it's this particular combination that's dangerous. My exit question is on something that we've spent very little time talking about, which is COVID. Is COVID a tipping point in the way the world interacts with China in the sense that it seems one, it seems to have united both Republicans and Democrats, awoken everyone to the danger that China poses. And I think polls show that majority of Americans, regardless of political stripe, blame China for the lockdown here. It seems to have woken up a lot of people to the danger of dependence on China for like PPE and other things and sort of increased calls for economic disengagement, I think not just in the US, but other places. And it also seems to have woken us to the danger of Chinese totalitarianism is that, you know, when China lies about how it treats the Uyghurs, that doesn't affect us all that much here at home. But when China lies about a virus that then gets out and kills a quarter of a million Americans and infects millions more, that does affect us. So it has, will this be remembered and as a tipping point in how the world treats China, or is this just going to sort of fade like SARS did uh, years ago as sort of a central impact point for our relationship with China? I think if we don't let them off the hook, it'll be seen as a turning point. So if we take this momentum in the United States for all the things you said, for diversifying our supply chain so that we're not dependent on China for pharmaceuticals and, and medical equipment, electronic equipment, or Zoom, uh, frankly, 
you know, playing a role in our technological life like this. There are bills in Congress that are bipartisan, geared towards diversifying our supply chains. Uh, they have a chance of passing with presidential leadership. Also, you know, as we discussed before, China has been very tough on uh, our allies, uh, European and Australia, when they step up and say, we need an investigation of China's uh, role in COVID. We need an investigation of China's disinformation during COVID, disinformation campaigns during COVID. But China is strong enough to bully all those countries if we don't help and if we don't stand up and say, yeah, you're right, we need an international investigation. You know, for example, we, it will just go away. It, it, this momentum for a more hardline, more realistic, let's say, China policy will go away if we just get back into the WHO without reforms that look specifically at, at how China got their man to head it and, and how China got WHO to parrot their line about how it wasn't a big problem and they were handling it. It will disappear as a problem if we just jump into let's cooperate on COVID. So we're at an inflection point. We got to make the right, let's say, four or five decisions right now because there is a chance to build a bipartisan coalition that's enduring, but also build an, an international coalition that looks at all the dimensions of the problem that you mentioned, from uh, disinformation to the shutting down of doctors, totalitarianism, to the shutting down of journalists in, in Wuhan, to the control of the WHO, to the bullying of other countries for speaking out against China's bad behavior during COVID, nationalizing PPE and so on. So we're at a moment where we could build an enduring uh, China policy, but we could also just let it slip by and say we're going to focus on other issues. Dan, we could talk for hours. First of all, it's a fantastic subject, but it's also a, a terrific book. So The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. The reviews have been sparkling, if I may say so, uh, which, really, uh, which really made me so proud. This is a great work, truly insightful, and something that everybody who cares about our national security and the future of our allies and and uh, and good policy should read. So thanks a ton for being with us. Thanks, thanks so much, on. Danny and Mark. It's really a lot of fun. All right, Danny. So what do we do about this problem? Rising China, if it collapses, it's bad for us. If it rises and succeeds, it's bad for us. We have to be able to deter them. How? What do we need to do here at home? Well, one of the things that I think the Trump administration bequeathed to the Biden administration, and they're, they should be very grateful for it, is a change in attitudes globally. You know, when we first went to our European allies and said, hey, 5G, Huawei, no way. That sounds good, actually. I like that as a slogan. So when we said 5G, no way, they said, ah, you know, you guys are stupid. No, we don't want to do this. We've now seen a turnaround in position from the UK government. We've seen a turnaround, not complete, but partial from the German government. We didn't talk about this at all with Dan, but, uh, but Chinese aggression on the Indian-China border has been pretty serious. And the Indians are so angry that they finally decided to line up with the Japanese and the Australians in military exercises that actually are focused on China. So we have actually seen global attitudes change on this. The Biden administration needs to consolidate that, and then they need to have a pushback policy. I, I worry that they don't have enough ideas, but I sure hope they do. Well, two things. One that I worry about is one, 
that the Biden administration, you know, everything, everything on the Democratic side has been driven, so driven for so long by Trump derangement, that if Trump did it, it must be bad, so therefore we must reverse it, that he did a lot of things right when it comes to China. And so let's hope that they don't reflexively try to pivot because it was Trump. And then two, they spent, you know, as we were talking about with Dan at the end, that COVID could really be an inflection point where the, where the world really woke up to the Chinese threat and how Chinese totalitarianism at home threatens all of us uh, at home as well. But, you know, during the campaign, Trump called it the China virus and said that, the, and blamed China for what was happening here. And the Biden folks became very invested in saying, nope, not China's fault, Trump's fault. Donald Trump was, it's his mishandling of this. And so it's become almost like blaming China is Trump deflection, right? And so, okay, now if Trump is out of office and Biden is president, is he going to be able to pivot? Because we all know that for whatever you think of Trump's response, the ultimate source of the virus and, and the reason why it's here is because China mishandled it. Can he pivot to holding China responsible for this and using that pivot to rally the world towards a more coherent and uh, aggressive stance towards Beijing? I don't think he's going to have much of a choice. I hope he's not going to have much of a choice. I think that our allies are going to be looking to us for answers, looking to us for shows of force in the Pacific, looking to us to help them repel the Chinese threat. I know that's what the Australians are looking for. I know that's what the Japanese are looking for. I know that's what the Taiwanese and the Hong Kong people are looking for. I pray we don't let them down, but watch this space. You know, we certainly will be. Well, I, I hope you're right, Danny. You always hope I'm right. And I so often am. I'm so rarely argue. <laughs> anyway, you guys know the drill. Complain about Mark to Mark. Compliments to me. Technical stuff to Alexa. Hope you had a great holiday. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Alexa, when's the last time Danny was right? <laughs> <laughs> She's not answering, Danny. <laughs> Never. Hey. <laughs> All right. Perfect. I want Alexa on the show more often. <laughs> I'll bet. You, you need reinforcements. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.